On this episode of The Vincast, I chat with wine educator and writer Curly Haslam Coates, aka Vintage Tasmania. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, uh, and thank you very much for being with me for another week, uh, another fantastic guest. Um, it's, uh, of course, always appreciated when people do get in contact with me, whether it's by social media or for my on my email, uh, thevincast at gmail.com. Uh, I, I love hearing from people, but I'm also um, really keen to hear uh, if you would like to hear from anyone in particular on the show, if there's a, a, a winemaker, a viticulturist, a, you know, wine writer, sommelier, retailer, whatever the case may be, um, that you've always kind of found their story interesting or wanted to hear their story uh, and you'd like to kind of um, put their name forward, please do get in touch with me because um, I'm always open to suggestion. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to find um, really interesting people and uh, and allow them to share their story. So uh, thank you as always. I uh, appreciate everyone subscribing and uh, leaving a rating and a review, which does help out a lot. Um, so this week's guest is um, a woman named Curly Haslam Coates, who uh, originally housed in the UK um, is now based in Tasmania, as she has been for a number of years, working as a wine educator and writer, uh, recently appointed on the panel for uh, the wine front. Uh, and it was awesome to be able to chat with her, find out a bit more about her story. Uh, she has a, a, a quite a, um, a different perspective on things, and uh, I think it's a very important perspective. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was good to hear her story. So thank you to Curly. Um, please do stick around until the end to find out how you can get in touch with either of us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Curly, thank you for joining me from the, the, the Apple Isle this lovely afternoon. Um, and welcome on the Vincast. Thanks for making time. And uh, first of all, congratulations on uh, the recent appointment to the uh, illustrious team at the wine front. Well, I thank you. Yeah, very excited about that. Fun times, fun times. You know, I'm yeah. sure you're now going to be inundated with lots of wines, but I, I, I would think that a large part of them bringing you on was to sort of really cover Tasmania. Yeah, and bubbles. I am a sparkly tragic and I make no apology for it whatsoever. <laughs> awesome. Well, hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll, we'll get on to um, where that uh, came about. But um, I start every episode of my podcast asking my guests if they can remember the, uh, the earliest interaction they had with one that had a bit more of an impact on them, um, you know, personally, that possibly sent them on the path to working in the wine industry. Ooh, um, if there was a, mo a moment, not really, because I kind of hit the ground running with it. Um, because my first sort of hospitality job was a bistro with a wine merchant attached, and I was 18, and that it literally was that was it for me. Um, because my interaction really came via food, 
I did um, sort of home economics, consumer and food technology right through to 16 and then loved, you know, it, it's like I found, I found my thing. I still love food and for me food and drink drinking food are entirely together um you know I don't really sit on one particular side of the fence when it comes to it so when I started at this bistro um in Yorkshire that just had you know great use of local and seasonal foods plus the wine element I was just in from day one so did you grow up in um in that part of England no, I went to school down south in Bedfordshire, which is about an hour or so north of London. So right. I'm definitely not London, um, but it was a private girls' school, which is why my voice sounds like it does. Okay. And how did you end up in Yorkshire? Um, uni, really. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, and that, that was it. And I ended up living more time in Yorkshire than I had down south. Was food and wine something that was important to your family or, you know, you know people no, in your not at all. immediate purview? Not- no, no, not not at all. Um, we ate out of out of the freezer, pretty much terrible eighties plastic food. Um, but no, my home ec teacher um, was awesome, and like I said, from school that was that was my thing. I found it, and I was like, oh. Okay, and so so going to work in hospitality sense. was was sort of a continuation of that. It wasn't like a oh, I need a job. Oh, I yeah. can get a job working in a bistro. It was like oh, no. I, I I like food. I'm interested in food. I, I'd be keen to work in that. Absolutely, yep. So you had an idea that like that was a career path for you? Like that was the start uh, of a I career or that was like, oh, I'm interested in this now, so why don't I go and work in, in this? Well, I, I, there was that sort of slight element of possibly going into PR and marketing, but that didn't last very long from when I started work. It was just like, no, this actually really inspires me, motivates me, so... Yeah, it was it was quite a, a solid thing. And I shared a house with a couple of bartenders as well. So my spirits, you know, I love my spirits as well. Really enjoyed working Again, um, in bartending. Something else well. in Tasmania yep. is doing really well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's um it's it's a really great spot for spirits. We do all so, right down there, you know, if you get so, a lot down. Um did you have any early influences as far as food and wine um or you know were you kind of looking at doing any education pathways at that point um a lot of it was sort of learning as i went along that was a huge part of it um you know we had it was it was the era of ready steady cook on tv so people are probably now sort of slightly more um you know famous chefs i suppose were were around Jamie Oliver that was sort of when he started to peak it was that sort of mid late 90s era oh look he's not that much older than me so you know maybe only a couple of years and so you know a lot of the music and the sort of stuff that he was doing was very I suppose to me it's it's not the famous Jamie Oliver of now it's it very much was of a time and of a moment and you know the sort of thing that people I knew were doing yeah yeah, uh, so it was, it was, yeah, very much a thing. And, and living in London, uh, not London, living in England, um, you know, not particularly up north, I guess, uh, not being uh, a wine producing country, you were exposed to wines from sort of everywhere. 
yeah, we have all the wine. Um, it always makes me laugh when people come here and like, how do you know about wine? You live in England. I'm like, yeah, we're the evil colonizers. We went and stole everything from everywhere. So our trade routes are really solid. Yeah. Um, you do know that I you make miss... wine in this country because of us, don't you? <laughs> the Romans, man. Yeah. And everything. Yeah. But yeah, it's all no, no, like I mean, like the, the, you know, the, 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 the colonizers, they brought the vines from Europe and plants them in here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, having, I do miss having access to that real broad range yeah. of wines. So when I go back to England, there's definitely like South African Shenin is quite high on my stuff I want to drink. Um, lots of Spanish wines. Um, I love Chile. I've been there a couple of times and just love it to bits. Um, but yeah, it is, it's that, it's that desire to, you know, get that breadth of flavours back in as well. So yeah. I get very excited when I go back to England. How long were you working in hospitality? Um, um, 15 years there and 10 years here now. So 25, yeah, 25 years now. So 15 years, um, were you in different parts of England? Were, were you, were, what kind of um, yeah, mainly different the north. venues were you working um, mainly in? The north and then, yeah, mainly the north. So did the bistro. I worked at um, some really nice restaurants as well. Um, I worked in a private members bar in Leeds. And that was fantastic because that was like the perfect time to be working around. Because um, gosh, we had some good wines. We used to get some absolute crackers. And a couple of our um, more famous people, because we were always at work and not particularly starstruck they used to leave us you know we used to get you know a little third of a bottle of crude left and um yeah we used to get some crystal and just those lovely sort of 88 89 90 vintages wow so there was there was a lot of floating around and it was just like <laughs> so you know i was already absolutely into my bubbles you know, even at that point. So yeah, I loved it. And then a lot of bartending. So I got to work with some really incredible people when I was in London. I lasted about 15 months in London. And I was like, mm, I'm not a big city girl. So I had to get out. Um, but no, it was really great. And it's lovely that, you know, a lot of those people are still friends, you know, coming up for nearly 20 years later. Um, so yeah, it was, good. it was a good time. And it's that beautiful time where we was, had shifted away from disco cocktails into that sort of speakeasy era. So I got to work with Sasha Petrasky, who started Milk and Honey with Dale DeGroff of Rainbow Rooms and Crafted Cocktail. Angus Winchester, who for a while was the global ambassador of Tanqueray and now does a lot of spirit education judging. Ian um, Burrell, rum ambassador. Um, who else? Simon Difford. Um, so, yes, a lot of really, for me, probably quite inspirational people and also who really respected the history and the education. So for me, I, you know, I'm, I'm endlessly curious. I loved that. Really, really loved it. And, and then I did um, a load of retail. Retail? Like, so, so yeah, wine retail. Yeah. Wine retail? Majestic Wine. Yeah, you Majestic work, Wine okay. in the UK. Yeah, Majestic Girl. There's a few of us around. Um, what was that experience like? Because, you know, I think I've spoken awesome. to some people who've been involved there but, and also people who have worked for them as far as selling them product. Um, you know, how was your experience working for Majestic? Oh, Probably fantastic. If not the most important That's retailer in the UK. Yeah, really good. And I love the emphasis they place on education. You know, it's, it probably is the people, like from my spirits experience and then working at Majestic definitely made me want to keep learning and also educate people because it was literally built into the model of the business. You couldn't get promoted 
um, sort of beyond trainee manager until you pass your level three. Um, and it was still wines and spirits at that point. And then they would pay for you to do your diploma as well. So I went all the way through and just the accessibility to product was fantastic. Um, plus, you know, some really good management training and I had an incredible regional manager. Um, so depending on where you were, you know, you had a different person who looked after that region and yeah, Phil Slack got some good skills, really good management skills, but also, um, that desire to keep learning, you know, everything was there and I, yeah, you know, I, I missed bits of it. Definitely. So you were doing WSET, um, education at this point? No, I, I only taught when I came here. I decided to teach when I, I came know, as far here. as the studying. Um, as far as the study. Yes, yes. Did my level three, won the Vinter's bursary, which is how I ended up here. Um, so yeah, top it's the scariest exam I've ever done. So I did the I got to the top thirty academic um, you know, for that year. And then they make you go and do a viva in London, which is terrifying. So there's eight tables where they just sit and stare at you whilst you've got two subjects on a card you get one minute to decide which one you're going to talk about and then they stare at you for five minutes whilst you have to tell them all about any part of the wine and spirit industry could be anything on all of those cards and they just sit and look at you and then you have to do a verbal um wine tasting of two wines so just full-on systematic approach just go through talk about it all the characteristics and then um an interview about your intentions within the wine industry Right, okay. And, and, so and what, what was your answer to that question at that point? Oh, look, the good thing is I've, I've done quite a lot of it. So did my diploma. Um, I'm in the sort of preamble of doing my MW. So I need to get my life sort of in order and tiny house and lots of other stuff so that I can go all tunnel vision and do that. Um, I wanted to specialise in sparkling wine and I am. And there's still, obviously, there's no end to learning. So... Um, you know, one of the massive motivators of being here was the sparkling wine. Um, yeah, and I still try and keep a, a very healthy eye on the English industry as that's grown. And well, to particularly yeah. the sparkling wine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just um, as far as those sparkling wines was apart from you know drinking, basically you know the best of the best. Um, what was it about sparkling wine that particularly appealed to you? It's interesting. It's, you know, that it's because it's, it's very much in the process to a certain extent of what, of how you treat the fruit that you've got. So even just those decisions from the very beginning of, you know, which grapes you're going to use. And it isn't just the, the Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, traditional method. Um, I was very lucky I got to go and play in the caves of Cordon Youth. And they're the people that first made Carver back in 1882, 1880-something. Um, still family-owned since 1551 as well. So that was, you know, really interesting. And I've been to Austria to go and see a guy who makes traditional method everything, including a sparkling Tokai, which is dry, but the fruit and the wine and everything's from Tokai. It's got everything, the marmalade, the walnuts, the Brazil nuts, the all of those flavour characteristics, but it's traditional method sparkling wine. I've tried Russian sparkling wine, which is truly awful, but I imagine they're chucking a lot of money at it. So I would give that another go just to see where they're at now. Um, some Brazilian sparkling wines, you know, some Croatian, Eastern European. So I find it really, really interesting that interpretation and the shifting and the changing of 
the grapes that you can choose, the methods that are out there. Um, yeah, Limu, bless them, the bitter first wife of sparkling wine. They they have not coped well with not being um, the the most famous sparkling wine in France. There's signs everywhere. She's like, we were first, we did it first. And you're like, oh, darling, I know, but champagne is better. Um, yeah, poor buggers. But yeah, I find it endlessly fascinating because when it's brilliant, it is just something magical. Just the complexity, the depth, the way they age. Um, you know, just that real beautiful, gentle rolling mousse on the tongue. It's, it's yeah, I find it endlessly fascinating. And um, fairly early on, you were a staunch proponent for being able to enjoy sparkling wine, champagne, carb, whatever the case may be, with food. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because like I said, it's everything to me is food and wine, wine and food. My 40th we had for lunch, um, Krug 90 and chocolate mac and cheese, because I now have a winter birthday. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was very much, you know, there was a lot of planning as to what was going to be the thing that went with that bottle of wine and I've started collecting as well for the 50th so I've got um I'm having 50 shades of Chardonnay for my 50th so I'm, I'm collecting Chardonnays and Blanc de Blancs from all over and squirreling them away ready for that year or so around being 50. Mm. Mm-hmm. Tasty goodness tasty tasty goodness. So at this point yeah. Um, you had already kind of discovered the sparkling wines of Australia, in particular, particularly Tasmania. You, you you kind of found an affinity with those, an interest in them. Yeah, absolutely. They were they were interesting. Occasionally, like little bits used to sneak through, but um, because I'm a galloping nerd, I'd always sort of go down to the London Wine Fair, which is fantastic. You know, when when you're studying, the London Wine Fair is just gold dust. Because if have you've ever been. No, no. I was only in London as a tourist. Uh, I mean, I've been to Vinitaly, I've been to Provine, both of those a few times. Is is the London yeah, Wine it's, Fair it's a trade fair? Is it more a consumer affair? Oh, it's very much trade. Um, and but for learning, it's fantastic because being able to, you know, particularly when I had exams coming up, and particularly that last level um, of the diploma where you do the light wines of the world just kind of all the stuff that it's harder to get hold of. You know, I had my game plan just written down. It's like, bang, 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 bang. I want to see these people, these people in the dance, these people questions, taste wines from here, um, particularly different vintages and different expressions of similar locations. Being able to do all of that um, in the same room is, you know, educationally incredible. So, And that really is something that we miss out on in Australia. You know, there is no kind of... Uh, well, I mean, between Melbourne and Sydney, you can't, you, it, it is a dis- disagreement about what is the most important and centralised market. Whereas, you know, in the case of the UK, it's clearly London. In the case of France, it's clearly Paris. Um, but we also don't, there's no kind of body that would organise such a, a, a trade event. Um, we really do have to settle for um, the larger imported distributors putting on their events and i don't i don't you know i don't know if it's the same in sydney but certainly in melbourne over the past few years um i've noticed that a lot of the people who used to throw these big events every year they're just not throwing them anymore they're doing sort of smaller more tailored or or themed events 
um, yeah, like I remember going to Provine and, and Vin Italy in 2012 when I spent the year in Europe and being blown away and thinking we could never do something like this in Australia. I mean, to be fair, we just don't have the population that would justify that amount of money, but it is just a, it's such a shame. I suppose there's also the fact that, you know, Australia isn't as, as important a market for producers from around the world to come to. Um, apart from the fact that it would be so insanely expensive for them to kind of bring out a whole team and all their point of sale material and stuff like that. But mm. yeah, look, I, whether it is in London or in Verona or in Dusseldorf or Bordeaux, if it's every other year, that is certainly something that I would recommend to people is to go to one of these big trade fairs because it, it is a very eye-opening experience and sort of seeing how, I guess, a bit more of the business of wine is conducted. Yeah, and I think as well, um, you know, sometimes people say I'm quite critical, and I totally am, um, but you can only be as old as you are. And you we are, are British a young after wine all. country. It's kind of in your <laughs> DNA. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's actually our basically <laughs> your own world. Um, <laughs> See, critical. But um, we, you know, we're, we're a young wine country here. And I think, you know, there are definitely things that come with that. And one of them is we're very, very, very reliant on the production side of things. And I think, you know, as somebody who works very much in the post-production world, um, there's not a lot of professional space to play in, which I do. Yeah, I do definitely miss that. And I know that, you know, I started the... Tasmanian WSET alumni because so many of my students were getting to the end of the course and like I'm gonna miss this being able to sit and talk to other professional people that I don't work with about wine about what's going on and you know different grape varieties and about the market there's no space for that really um you know there's there's little sort of pockets if you're a son or if you work in a particularly fancy establishment but there isn't really a lot of sort of professional networking development and growth and space for there, non-producers. There is also the fact that Australia, it's a very fragmented um, and disparate kind of industry for wine uh, and for, for anything really. Like you look at Australia and it is essentially a continent. It's not a country. Yes, exactly. so, from, so just from state to state, there is distance. Um, whereas, you know, if in Europe, you can go 15 minutes, half an hour and you're in a different wine region, and you know it's like a domino effect and and so you are kind of and not to mention the fact that there are vastly larger numbers of of wine producers and and a much um bigger volume of wine produced so that that is definitely at our disadvantage uh and and like i said before the population there's just sort of there, there is there isn't enough population there isn't enough money um in in the industry to sort of warrant that and it'll be interesting to see what happens post COVID 19 if um if we will go back sort of 10 or 15 years ago where there aren't as many sommeliers in in venues you know they do go a bit more casual um because they just sort of can't justify the expense of having that extra person there i think the thing with that is it's only looking at money and nothing else and skipping over the fact that actually, if you've got a better trained staff generally, you sell more wine. And it's such a simple thing, you know, I 
make no bones about it. I'm all about education and training, training, education, education and training. Um, but if you've got everybody who works at a place who has at least some knowledge or interest or at least they're expected to be involved, you'll sell more wine. I guess what I, what I, what I'm, the point that I'm making is that like, it's all well and good to have someone at that level, but if you, you are not able to put that expense, that, that cost into your prices that people are willing to pay, that's where you can't justify it because they're, they're, they're still a, a relatively small proportion of the population who are, firstly going to a venue of that kind of caliber, but also uh, willing to spend the time and money to engage with the services of a sommelier with, you know, a, a, a very high quality wine list. Um, yeah, don't get me also, wrong. I'm also for education, but much, at the end much, of the day, it is, it is, it is market driven. It is, but I think it's actually much, much broader than that, where those opportunities for education and training and they don't, always need to be i mean yes loves wset and you know songs australia all of you know those institutions but just at a very basic level even at retail you know the retail knowledge in a lot of places is shocking it's absolutely shocking and that is just business if you've got stock in store it needs to go somewhere else if, simple if, as that if you are running it's, a it's business go selling to a a, a a caliber of clientele if you are stocking products of a certain quality and price point, you have to have a sales force who are motivated and capable of selling it to the highest level that it deserves. If you're not doing that, then you're mm. wasting your own time. Yeah. And it's, you know, whether it's cellar doors, whether it's retail, whether it's just a, you know, a little bar, you don't need to have a big extensive wine list. It doesn't necessarily need to be big and expensive. Um, but just on a basic business level, you're also missing out on a huge demographic. So recently I took part in the Irini Fine Mind to Fine Wine Global Conference and um, Dr. Akila Kadeh, who is an absolute legend, she does a huge amount of work in the diversity space because wine has, you know, like horrific diversity issues. Um, and one of the really interesting things she talked about as well was missing out on the black dollar because there's always that assumption that oh you're not the because i'm not oh there's pretty chuppity face i am not anybody's target market as as a look at me i will get skipped over for somebody who looks more like your correct consumer and if you chuck that out the window you can sell so much wine um I got promoted at Majestic um, just as the arse fell out of the financial world. So global financial crisis, I got promoted in store. Yeah. Yeah, 2008. Um, so yeah, I got promoted in store. So I'm up against like boom figures of my own. I'm like, well, this is fucking brilliant, isn't it? Um, and actually it taught me so much about consumer behavior and about who would buy wine, when they would buy wine, how much people were willing to spend. And we were opposite a supermarket. And in England, you can buy booze in a supermarket. And they sell it cheap as all get out because they put it all on crisps and nappies and carrots and stuff. And, you know, so if people want just cheap, easy access, it's right there across the road. 
drive up in the car, fill your trolley up, do your big shot, booze goes in as well, bang. People would actively not buy across the road and come to us because my staff were trained. But also they weren't just trained in wine knowledge, but also to talk to people and to actually listen to talk to see what they want and pick the right wine for them. So in the middle of a financial crisis, we ended up growing fine wine sales with something like 273%. That speaks and a lot to lot- people in, in that kind of environment. And, and I'm sure it's the same thing here. Uh, sorry, the same thing now through COVID-19. It's probably a little bit more difficult because of, um, you know, retail being closed, in store, that kind of thing. But people have, you know, in, in times of a crisis, um, largely financial, I think people do crave that kind of personalized service and feeling to be made special because there's a concern that they're not going to be made to feel special, you know, anymore. Like whether, you know, like things become a bit tougher. There's a little bit of that, but you know, we're also in Yorkshire where people talk to each other on bus. So, you know, there's, there's a slightly different element, you know, as well. Um, people who normal demographic for buying a wine like that would actively come away from the bigger brands that are better known that easy access pricing to come to us for something a little bit different and yeah our buyers did some great work and they were picking wines from regions just to the left and the right of the more famous ones because they were good value or scooping stuff up you know from other places that were going belly up and that kind of stuff so they were really really proactive but we also would just kind of go, well, what do you like? What would you like? And we had a taste encounter, so people could try stuff. And again, that's not really relevant with COVID because we don't all want to die. But we ended up selling, I think it was 72 bottles of Carignan just because we opened it on the tasting counter. No discount. Great price that people say, oh, you can't sell that. We used to have a waiting list for Gewurz and for Viognier. Um, there really wasn't much in that shop that didn't shift because you just find the person for it and people like that. And it's actually really important. I get really frustrated when people kind of, oh, we can't sell that. And it's just like, yeah, but it's sitting there. It's got to go somewhere. And even if it is just like, right, I'm going to find who should have this wine and get shot of it and never order it in again or build up a repu- you know, reputation for being able to source something a little bit interesting so other people come to us. And yeah, you know, we were dealing with restaurants that were going bust and all, you know, all those bits and pieces as well. But it's, it's really interesting when you start looking at every single person that crosses your threshold as a customer and not the right customer or the, oh, I won't bother because they look a bit bogan. And loads of bogan looking people come in and, you know, there was a guy thought, that used to come in. I thought you called in. them chavs. Yeah, chavs, but I was trying to be bilingual um, or trilingual or whatever. Um, yeah, totally chavtastic. But, you know, one of my biggest Bordeaux customers was a guy who came in in his painting overalls and a beaten up old Ford with his ladder on top. And I often think that wine can be its own worst enemy because they're the people you're missing. Because I, you know, and I say it because I, I know it's happened to me because I don't look like the kind of person who's going to spend any money. You know, somebody's trying to foist some shitty Muscata or Pinot Grigio or, you know, something that costs eight bucks at me because I don't look like the kind of person who will get anything more interesting. And that has happened again and again and again and again and again. So how, how, how do we connect with, with that 
missing, you know, like the, the, the missing customer base. They are base. human. Be a human. It's really actually not that hard. Be a kind, decent human being. And do you, don't do you think that in a, in a similar, well, I suppose it's not necessarily the same thing, um, in terms of like seeing ethnic diversity um, working within the industry, whether it's producing the wine or selling the wine, do you think that is a, a contributing factor to to alienating Usually. a, a demographic? Absolutely, because, you know, I'm very lucky, particularly, you know, before I moved here, I, I already had 15 years in the industry, but I've had to fight tooth and nail to be heard or to be seen. I'm ignored in so many things because I'm not a producer and I'm not a sommelier. I sit in a different part of the industry and... The good thing is, you know, I've done my study. I've, I've put my years in. It's 25 years in now. I'm quite happy to say, no, I think this is correct. And I think, you know, this is something you should look at. You know, this is a different way of looking at something. Yeah, you know, I will never stop learning because wine is, isn't static. It's a constantly moving beast. But, yeah, we are shocking. You know, even the people that I've spoken to about what it's like being black in the wine industry here, and they're just like, no, that can't be happening. I'm like, I'm telling it to your face. And you're refusing to comprehend the battle I have to go through to be heard, to, heard, to be seen. You know, if you've taken the time to read some of the sort of big articles that I've been involved with, you know, when Jancis reached out to, you know, that big group of about 20 of us. And those stories about being short, bored and ignored are all true. You know, if there's six people at a trade event or a bar or whatever or something. Um, yeah, I'll get short poured. I'll get, you know, barely a drop in the glass where everybody else will get a proper tasting amount. Um, you know, I get an awful lot of the what book did you know about wine? You know, partly the English, partly the girl, partly the colour. Um, and it's disgraceful. It really is. And, you know, I talked to a few of my students because, you know, one of the reasons I got a lot of rage was people like, oh, it's just because there isn't anybody. And I'm sat there looking at a girl of Asian descent, you know, a, a chap more of South Asian, somebody from here, somebody from there, somebody from different places, non-traditional Anglo-Caucasian looking people. And they're all, yeah, that's happened to me. Yeah, that's happened to me. Yeah, that's happened to me. And Australia is still the biggest sort of, you know, wine producing location doing naff all about it. There is no interest. It's like, oh, it doesn't really, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't factor here. It's not a thing. Of course, there's not anybody of colour. And I think, I think that's partly like, it says a lot about the perception of what their customers, who their customers are. Um, I, you know, like, and particularly at a, a slightly more, elite level uh, in terms of wines produced at the sort of the top 5%. I, I think they're still struggling with, you know, the fact that there are educated, um, motivated female consumers. Like there's still plenty of older yeah, males in the industry. Um, I hate to say it, both yeah. in terms of producers and merchants who think they really are just catering to white men in their fifties and sixties and seventies. And they are, they're they're dinosaurs. They're going to get, they're going to get forgotten. They're they're not connecting with, uh, you know, like 50% minimum of the clientele 
um, you know, and then there is the perception of, of, you know, young people, what, what could they possibly know? You're just, you're just drinking it cause it's booze. Um, and you know, I've been to enough trade events and whatnot, and I, I'm sure that there is a perception. So for example, in Melbourne has an incredibly, um, large, diverse, um, Asian population. And I'm sure you like a lot of these people would see Asian, um, attendees at, at a trade event and go, oh, they're probably just some kind of Chinese restaurant. They're just kind of looking for the same sort of stuff. But, you know... And it's abysmal. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really terrible attitude to have. And, and I honestly think that the uncomfortableness, the shame or the, are you just being a bit over, you know, oversensitiveness sort of comments that people will probably be feeling listening to this is tough, tough tits, honestly. If you are so narrow in your thinking, in your business projection and everything that you do, that you can't be bothered to spend a little bit of time opening your mind, listening and looking for new avenues, you deserve every hurdle you have to go through. And you're like, oh no, my wine brand's not doing as well. Good, I don't care. If you are not interested in actually making any difference in making sure that people are educated and actually we're so poor at that um, succession planning. Like who's coming next? Who's coming next? And stop picking people who look identical to you and actually look for real talent. And often, you know, it'll come from here, there and everywhere. And one of, you know, one of the most exciting students I've got of late is, yeah, he's blonde, blue eyed, white boy. And I'm like, yep, you deserve every inch of my attention because he's passionate and he's excited and he's looking to study and I'm like yeah that's it this time it is a blonde-haired blue-eyed boy but next time it could be somebody else and if you're not looking for potential and Del DeGroff said this you know he said look I can teach people the knowledge but what I want is somebody with potential and if you're only looking in a small corner for potential then yeah Australia will suffer and it will struggle and you know, part of it is growing pains. We have to grow out of that really, you know, it's quite a pathetic mindset, I think, and actually let the people, because there's plenty of them out there as well, who are willing and looking to the future rather than just backwards all the time, and also looking to different regions and thinking, oh, that's interesting. What could we learn from that? What could we learn from there? And not thinking that, well, no, we've got it right. We've got it going on and that's it. And just keeping very locked down and very limited those people need more of a voice across the industry because you get more sharing of knowledge but also that engagement of people it's important to our economy it's important to our restaurants it's important to our culture and our life and you know being able to get stuff delivered to your door during lockdown from people who you know were there risking themselves shows that it's part of our life being able to share food and drink is enormous and if you're shutting out various parts of the you know of, of, the, of your culture your community because they don't look right or they don't sound right you deserve every hurdle in business that's coming mm. i honestly believe that and i just think it's dumb to purposefully hobble your own industry because you can't possibly comprehend thinking differently former um guest of the podcast jane thompson 
um, of course, has been really instrumental. Um, firstly, in terms of trying to connect with the female demographic as far as wine consumers and, you know, doing an amazing job of demystifying and educating and making wine more accessible, but also has been involved with, uh, you know, the, the Women in Wine Awards. Do you think that there is any possibility that there could be a similar sort of um, uh, organisation or an awards um, for people of no of, no 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 you bring them into the main mm. simple as you bring them into the main because that was about a big argument are... against sort of the women and wine awards it's like oh you know why why are we having this one especially for them you know it, it should just be it should not be based on gender but their argument was yeah but the women aren't necessarily given those opportunities and they're not necessarily in positions of of influence yeah, no, it's it's really really important to have, um, you know, an, a, a pathway. But I think, look, we've got the Women in Wine Award, which is fantastic, and I think anybody who's in a position within there is to have that opportunity to open those doors and kind of go, well, look, let's make sure everybody doesn't have the same job title, because that's another thing that's also really important that with diversity being an issue is often you're taking away also all of the people who do the grunt work, you know, whether it's pickers who are not of the Caucasian persuasion who come from somewhere else. You can't make your wine if it's still in the field. If it's still outside of the vine, you're not making any wine. So all of those different roles, and we need each other. We need all of those different roles to be recognised. And also, if you, you can't be what you can't see. You know, if there's nobody who looks like you, or sounds like you or something like that it's really hard for people to take those steps and stand up for themselves you know like I said I already had a good chunk of industry experience and I've got some amazing support of which I've got a little bit here but most of it's international who you know I'm very comfortable kind of going no this isn't okay I'll happily speak out publicly but if you're really only a year or so in and all you're hearing is like, no, it's not really, you know, that's not the, dem this is the demographic that we're looking for and it's always not you. Or these are the people who are succeeding in the industry and none of them are even close to being like you. Why would you, you would, you know, it's so hard to go against that to mm. keep going and keep moving to become something that you actually could be. You know, it's really important to have those faces out there. And, you know, for me, it's been really exciting connecting globally with people, kind of going, oh, look, you look like me. You know, it's, um, it is, it's really exciting. And which sounds dumb, but it's all, you know, if you look at winery marketing, all that kind of stuff, you know, people sit and join glass of wine, nobody looks like me. And it just says, you're not welcome. And then you meet some of the people and they, often do literally say you're not welcome or you this get short you, yeah. or you get ignored oh not for me but just you know i'm lucky enough old enough and ugly enough to to stand up and kind of go no excuse me you've missed me because i've got to a point where i'm comfortable saying that but if you're 18 months in to the industry and you're quite excited and you want to learn and you think yeah i'll do some study and there's things i want to go and learn some more and at every step you're being shunned why would you keep going? It's pretty demoralizing. 
Yeah, it is. It's massively. And it's humiliating as well. Mm. It's hugely humiliating to have to constantly give my CV of why I should be allowed to be in this room. Jog on. I've worked hard to get here. You know, if you want to talk to me about wine, wicked. But I should not have to every single time explain myself as to why I'm possibly here and why I could possibly be somebody to be listened to. And it's, I can imagine how hard it is. Because like I said, you know, when I talk to my students about it, they opened up to me because they know I'm a safe person to talk to. But it is, it's just like, oh, God. Right, okay, I need to make sure these doors are open and staying open for those that come after me. You know, everybody shouldn't have to have the same fight over and over again because, you know, because I'm token at the moment. It's like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll be token for the moment. Mm. You know, that's, it just is, it's something I'm willing to take. But we've got awards. We've got an industry. We've got incredible talent here in Australia. You know, we've got, you know, it got me from the other side of the world to come here. That's how good some of the wines are in Australia, you know, and there's still ones that I used to sell in England that I've got a little for from all over the country. And yeah, there's, there's so much good here. And we're at a tipping point of, we can go somewhere good or we can go somewhere bad with this. Hmm. What was it that actually did bring you out here and, and made you decide to, to shift your life to the other side of the planet? It was, it was a sparkling wine um, that made me choose to come here. Because um, So when I won my vintage bursary, which is a study trip of my choice, I spent a lot of time wandering around work, unloading pallets, going, but there's always that sparkling element. And I was like, I can get myself some champagne, so not there. Um, you know, I looked at a few other sort of key sparkling wine regions, and um, then Andrew Peary's wine rocked up, and I was like, Because eh. I've, I've had wines of his off and on since end of last century um yeah we sell the 99 pipers brook at one of the places i worked um and there's a couple of bits at the very first place that i worked so yeah so here and there there's always been a little something something and i'm like oh and spent 10 days in the mainland five days in tasmania and i knew i had to be in tasmania um partly for the sparkling and partly because it's an incredible place it's um yeah the people here are outstanding it's it's a really amazing place the food is out of control and it's just yeah there's there's something very special about tasmania and so yeah went back did my diploma um came out here got a visa because i'm a smart ass and because i could teach at wsct so bringing skills to a region that didn't have it so i got my visa um and this year we should take over 300 people having done the wsct in tassie which for a little old island um, is, you know, it's definitely a good thing, but there's, there's so much more we could do, I think. So much more. And, you know, particularly now when we can't go anywhere else, you know, we really need to be thinking a lot more about how we operate as an industry. Uh, um, shifting out here, you, were you in, Employed by WSCT, or would you, um, no, you have to find I work elsewhere? No, I got a job at Joseph Crowley. Yeah, right. I got a job at Joseph Crowley, and they were happy to sponsor me. Um, and I still teach, you know, out there in normal times as well. Um, you know, Jeremy and Dave, particularly, and Joe himself, have been, you know, you know, they're really keen and they're supportive of putting people through their training. And 
it's it's such a good thing and also you can do stuff like salary sacrifice which is expensive for you as a business owner talk to you you know do it as a salary sacrifice just you know every week put a little bit aside for your study um and you know then do it that way and you end up with people who are staying because they know they're being supported through the studies it doesn't cost you anything because they're doing it out of their own salary um and you get all the rewards from it and it's it's yeah it's good and it's important and you know we need to taste and think broadly not narrow did it take you long to explore all of tasmania and its many different valleys oh look i'm still going still going i love it it's um tassie's incredible you can go half hour down the road it feels like you're somewhere completely different it's still now you know on certain days i'll just sort of turn around the corner before i go down the hill home and it's just like i live here it's it's an incredible place you know i'm off down the southwest next weekend so i'll see if you wine cider produces on the way through but yeah it's um it's a really magical place to be and there's a lot of great talent good people great food so it's um yeah it's it's a really special place to be mm. and and educating Although at some point i do want to do uh an argentinian wine tasting on the west coast of tasmania because when you're on that west coast there is nothing between us and argentina really and argentina yep. south africa's too too north and so you go straight past there is nothing between us and argentina right down the bottom the i guess coast yeah patagonia yeah well it's just sort of mid central west if you're right on the coast there's nothing else just keep going and you've got to keep going and going and going until you hit argentina so i'd love to do an argentinian wine tasting there and you know just be like yeah all the way over there and how have you found um you know educating teaching people down down there and introducing them to wines from from other parts of the world Oof. That is an experience and a half. Um, it really, really interesting, um, but in a beautiful way. Um, th- there's just some really, ooh, yeah, my students over the years have been amazing. There's hopefully, you know, a good chunk of them that will surpass me as the world goes on. Because, um, yeah, they're, they're cracking. But it's so lovely introducing people to all these different places that they may have heard of and just sort of looking at it from a different perspective and not just thinking about technical winemaking actually just thinking about being in a place and particularly that food because with Europe you know things grew up together I always say look how far can you ride on a horse in a day and you know people really didn't go much further than than that you know their lives were enmeshed in a much smaller location and grapes been grown for millennia and so the sort of food and wine and things like um, Muscadet Muscadet is boring isn't it most of the time there's a few crackers here and there, but I was talking to one of the guys who um, I worked with previously, who's actually from the Nante, and he's like, "Well, yeah, it makes sense because of um, like the the shellfish that we've got here, and just really gently steamed and done really simply with the wine." It's like, uh, like yeah, that totally makes sense. And same with Jerez, yeah, people get very excited about things. Chocolate, um, it's pretty grim. Chuckly, I love Chuckly. But yeah, you know, we get over to her earth and I just didn't get it. And I realised why I found Sherry so hard and Fino is because I can't eat a lot of seafood. And so I was just kind of like, 
And at that point, particularly when I was sort of still studying, I'm like, I don't really like olives massively. But I get, I like a big juicy olive now. So I'm sort of, and I'm like, oh, right, yeah, that makes sense. But a dry still... Rosso, because I love cured meats and cheeses. And I'm like, oh, right, yeah, I'm much more a whiskey drinker. And once I was there and with the food, and with everything, I was just like, this totally makes sense why these work together. And so that context Still one of well the best food and wine experiences of my life was going to a tapas bar in San Lucar, right on the beach, drinking cold manzanilla with just, like we went, it was a seafood tapas place. And we said, just, just send stuff out, we'll eat it. Um, it was yeah. just magic. And it's yeah, not something it's, you necessarily really appreciate here in Australia, I don't think. Not, not you know, like, yes, we yeah, are it's, much it's more interested in food and wine um, in Australia, more than a lot of countries, I think. Yet we don't have that kind of historical and cultural thing that they have in Europe. So True, but, for them, it's a bit more innate. A lot of it doesn't make sense even with some of the stuff that we have in town because I've moved from Yorkshire to here. So I'm like venison, dark quail. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and then I had to talk to people who were just like, what, quail? Who has quail? And I'm just like, um, everybody here. It's a fairly normal thing. And, you know, during winter, go down the road and go, you know, spend 20 bucks and get a black Paribor truffle that was dug up that week. And just those little things of eating has become very different and very seasonal and I think that also inspires a lot of the wine as well and so for a lot of people they're like oh right yeah and just you know looking at it beyond just the technical this is it and also that separation of I don't care if you like it or not what's happening in the glass that's so important because actually the wine's not necessarily for you there are wines that are very good or outstanding and I'm like yeah I don't like it though and it's being able to peel apart that separation of, I understand what's happening with this wine. I don't want to drink it, but that guy over there, that is, that's the wine for them. That's the wine for them. And, and that separation is actually really, really important. I still maintain um, that the most important, valuable thing that a wine consumer can learn is why they enjoy something. They don't have to know everything about a wine, but hopefully they at least can go away saying why what what is it about this one that i enjoy because that will give them so much more confidence to go into a wine retailer or to a sommelier and say i like wines that have this or i like wines from 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 this regional country or i like wines that go with this kind of i think words are important yeah words are so important um actual real descriptive tell you what it tastes like words they're so so important because you know we do, we have to do a level of translation anyway you know it's like oh i don't like that sharp wine it's like ah you don't like a wine with a lot of acidity or you know people say oh that wine's really sweet and you know it's not sweet and you're like ah it's super fruity though right and you know giving them actual real word yeah real real world words are so important because that's how they can convey that why to other people um because you know it always makes me laugh when you see somebody trying to get super science in it's like oh yeah it doesn't have those methoxypyrazines or the characteristics and it's like it's not helpful no it's not helpful nobody's going to go away being more knowledgeable for that word it's like oh those green peppers that sort of you know really herbaceous that's something that people have a an understanding of what that actually is it's like saying a wine's corked. Oh, that wine's corked. 
that's wicked but if you don't know what that means you mm. are no more informed than you were before mm. it's the you know that that skanky wet dog in the corner of a damp cellar people are like oh right yeah you know it's on a woolen blanket it's gone a bit funny moldy yeah that, that's what caught flying is and you know and actually having real words for things and don't come in and ask me about a ph or something nobody cares what's the ph list 75 i don't think it matters now if the wine people have done their job the winemakers they've got that shit sorted well you know i will say now now that i am actually limits. making one of my own ph is actually really important to me <laughs> it wasn't before but it is yeah, now <laughs> to you but because I mean, but you're that's, making but that's me personally yeah and also like once it's finished you don't need to keep going back and back and back and back and back and back to taste the ph do you mm. you know constantly testing like once it's done you're like yep yeah, i know what that what it means i know about you know it's stable all the you know the possible spoilage and yada 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 it's important for me to know it's that to, to get an idea of where the wine will be but once i know what it is then it's like great now i can focus on other stuff Exactly. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it is really important to pull away from that um, overly technical approach and actually talk to people as people. Um, and, you know, and also not, not mock people. That's a huge thing that we, you know, I pretty much start every session with um, is we've all got our dirty drinking secrets. You know, when I was four, I was sneaking sparkling wine off a table, which probably explains a lot of things about me at a wedding when I was left unattended. Um, we all we all go through a journey to get to where we're drinking now we don't necessarily do it as a teenager some people are only starting in their 50s or 60s mm. and there's a journey and there's a process we've all drunk dirty 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 embarrassing stuff in our times let people be where they're at and take them up their ladder not what you want to sell them exactly or what you because what the you thing value is, like, you add, this, the, is, this the, is what you need to know it's like no let them let them work out what they want to learn and and what they don't need to know yeah people have got to you've got to let people go their own way because you know at the end of the day if you gave me 10 grand to spend on wine i'm buying a boatload of sparkling i'm gonna buy a lot of shardy i want to buy a lot of rioca because i freaking love it probably good chili and stuff and you know there's, there's sort of bits and pieces from here and there but my first few are going to definitely be Bubbles, Shardy and Rioja, be my top three. And then I'll start playing with other stuff. Whereas somebody else will be like, I'm running on Bubbles. And that's the thing is, you know, I know what the choice is out there. And I still don't want to buy a lot of X, Y and Z. I know what I'd like. And because they're my personal choice. However, when I'm teaching, when I'm working, it's not about me. I'm not actually important. I'll help you find your words for things. And that's all you do with somebody else. You help them find their words. You help them find how to talk about their wines and how to play with wine as well to take, you know, things that really don't work and to try them together and go, ah, and be like, yeah, it's awful, isn't it? Right, try it with this, or try it with that. Because at the end of the day, if you want to have so turn with your steak, go nuts. You know, it's your bag, go nuts. I know what I'd have. I'm not going to have your so turn with it. I'm going to have something different, but maybe you know maybe maybe if you were having you know a rich buttery sauce with your steak but even so no no, <laughs> no. it's not it's not what i would have but if somebody mm. else wants to have you know gallon sauvignon blanc sure this is the nicest one you can have for your money you know and 
So I don't, I'm not a fan of mocking particular grape varieties or styles because often they're gateways, often they're things people feel comfortable with. And from that, you kind of show them the paths to different things that they might like and get them comfortable and then they start to explore and then you have people going, oh yeah, I'll buy some of that Viognier. And you have a waiting list for Gewurz. And we really did, seriously. There'd be times when all, right. all my 60 bottles that have arrived, gone to sort of people before they even hit the shelves. My wife likes Gewurz. You've got to talk to people. It's because Gewurz is delicious. <laughs> Good converts is amazing. I love good it's a, it's a bugger. It's, hard, it's, hard, it's harder to grow and it's pretty hard to make as well. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's why I let somebody else do it. <laughs> Kelly, Alrighty, thank you I'm very much. To 5% of in a second. Kelly, but, um, thank you yeah, very much. Um, I really do appreciate it. Um, are there the places that you would like for people to get in contact with you, social media, website, that kind of stuff? Oh, look, I'm really easy to find. Everything is vintage Tasmania. And also, pretty much, if you Google curly Tasmania wine, you'll find me. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, occasionally there's a luxury of being, you know, the only non-Caucasian persuasion person is um, I'm really easy. Like, yeah, that's a, yeah, so yeah, I'm really easy to find. Everything's vintage Tasmania. Curly, wine, Tasmania. Google it, find me. Say hi. Wonderful. Uh, and and awesome. eventually people will be able to come down to Tasmania and uh, meet you in person, yeah, go on a wine tour or something. Get some wine sent up. Um, I'm thinking do some fun Zoom wine tasting so you can order wine in and have a little look at Tassie whilst you can't come and see us yet. Mm, wonderful. Well, thanks again. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, someday get, being able to catch up again in person. Absolutely. Real wines. Be safe over there. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can find out more information uh, about uh, my background, my, my kind of journey uh, on my website, intrepidwino.com. Um, more information about the podcast there, as well as uh, different writing that I've done, um, lots of videos as well. Uh, and uh, you can follow me on social media at intrepidwino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do it on a number of different uh, apps or platforms, um, iTunes, Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Music coming soon. Um, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and also uh, you can leave a rating and a review, which does help me out immensely. Uh, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, I'd be thrilled if you would check out my my little wine project called Vino Intrepido. Uh, I, I've been making wines for the last five years uh, under the, the, the brand of um, Italian varieties, uh, generally in Victoria. Uh, and uh, it's a fantastic um, uh, opportunity to explore. Uh, I love making the wines. So um, vinointrepido.com is the website uh, on social media at vinointrepido on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, guys, as always, thank you very much. Uh, I really hope you uh, tune in to next week's episode, uh, another awesome guest. But until then, bye.